So this past week I was uh, continuing in my uh, quest to build an immunity to disappointment. I'm watching Blue Jays baseball. Yeah, it's going well. And um, they were playing Baltimore the earlier, earlier in the week and uh, the center fielder for, uh, for Baltimore, um, he makes this catch. He goes right up against the fence, jumps up, catches the ball. Robs the Blue Jays of a home run. And then he starts beating his chest. Let's go! And I thought it, I mean, it was, it was a good catch, but I thought it was, it, something about it didn't look right. It looked funny. I've seen this all the time. Guys jump up against the wall. But for some reason, this didn't look right. It looked like, you know, when uh, you're trying to get a, a, a fun action shot of your kid and you get them to jump against the wall and take a picture. I'm like, what, what about this doesn't seem right? Then the announcer said that the, that the, the fence is seven feet tall. Well, I stand before you at a, at a towering 5'9", okay? If I, if I blow dry my hair up, maybe I'm 5'10". But look, this is seven feet right here. My hand is, this is seven feet. Well, it wasn't that impressive. I realized this is why it doesn't look good. This, is like a, this guy's like six foot something. He didn't even really need to jump. If he just stood his hand, stuck his arm up, he would have caught it. But because he jumped, it just looked odd. And then he beat his chest. Come on, seven feet. Now, if he was in Boston, Fenway Park, 37 feet. Now that, that would have caught my attention. I tip my hat to you, sir. 37 feet. Nobody's, nobody's jumping 37 feet. Superman is the only one, and I don't mean Kevin Pillar, who we traded to San Francisco. I mean Kal-El, the last son of Krypton, Superman. He's the only one jumping 37 feet. And uh, just, that fence is impossibly high. We've been going through Romans. We get to Romans 3 this morning, where the Apostle Paul talks about the loving standard of God's law being impossibly high. And he's really wanting to build a case for the magnificence of God's grace, our need for God's grace, the magnificence of God's righteousness, our need for God's righteousness. And so what he does is he, prevent, he, he presents the divine standard of God's law precisely as it is, just see that it is impossibly high. Now, leading up to this point, Romans 1 um, shows how people of non-faith need God's grace. You know, they have no regard for God. Um, but then in Romans 2 and 3, he shifts gears, and we talked about this last week, to challenge those who, they're not of non-faith, but they're actually of self-righteous faith, who think they can actually keep the impossibility of God's law. And what he's showing is that actually they need grace. They, they, they or we, if we fall into that self-righteousness, we can't beat our chests <laughs> We should be in repentance, not beating them with bravado, but beating them with repentance. And so we're going to pick up uh, the apostles writing here in verse 9, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, where at this point he's now arguing that regardless of your nationality, we all need God's grace. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9 to 31. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and the Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it's written, no one is righteous, no, not one, not one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And in the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we've known that whatever the law says, 
It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, to which the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace, though the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God presented as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is our boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, but by the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And since there is only one God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word. Now, as we unpack this text this morning, we're going to look at four things. What? Four? What? Yes. Four. Mark it in your calendars, people. Um... We're going to unpack this, this, this text in this way. The first thing is this. There are no degrees of lostness before God. Secondly, silent lips and empty hands is how we receive the righteousness of God. Thirdly, peace is found by reserving our boasting for the grace of God. And finally, we flourish in life by upholding God's law with hearts that are animated by God's grace. So here's the first thing. There's no degrees of lostness before God. When you look at verses 9 through 18, he uses really strong universal language, right? Nobody seeks. All have turned aside. Just these huge global statements he's using. And he's, he, we tend to be very quick to divide the world up into good and bad people. But the, the book of Romans and all of Scripture, what it reveals is the world is not divided up into good and bad people. It's divided up into dead and alive people. That's a very different thing. It keeps us from a sort of moralistic judgment when we recognize that you're either, you're either dead or you're alive. In Romans, Paul's using all this legal language. You find it all throughout Romans where, you know, he's an expert in the law. And so he's using the law as like a black cloth to showcase the jewel that is the gospel of God's grace. So when you get to verse 9, you get an example of some of his, his legal terms where he says, under the law. And that phrasing, under the law, He's getting us to consider citizenship, and he unpacks this later, the idea of citizenship. You're a citizen of which kingdom, and whose laws are governing that kingdom. And so where he's really going here with this, as he unpacks it further, is you're either, he uses the term, you know, you're either going to be under law or you're going to be under grace, and these are the two options. And the reason that he presents this is because he's showing to the church in Rome, a church he's never even been to yet, but he's like, this is the gospel I'm going to preach and unpack when I get there. And so what we get with this terminology of under grace or, on, or under the law that he's using under the law is that 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is contrary to every other form of religious system because religious systems operate with the marriage ba- with the sorry the merit badges right you you earn your merit badge you put it on your sash you collect your sat your religious badges you present the badge you're accepted that makes sense relating to a god or the gods you know the polytheistic kind of roman greco-roman world tit for tat kind of a way but what paul's establishing here is that actually the gospel strips us of our merit badges because the standard of god's law is impossibly high it's actually given to, it's it's given not for the purpose of being able to achieve it it's given to, to actually as he says here in this text show us our sin that's the first purpose of of the law before christ uh, fulfills it and we're able to actually be guided by it the first thing it does is it presents itself as a 37 foot wall this is impossible and so where we're where we're um invited to consider is that in christ we're all dead and in him we're all alive so paul uses this strong poetic imagery and you'll find it in verses you know 9 through 18 and the, the poetic imagery, you know, their throats are graves. You know, just imagine that. You know, everything that's coming out of their mouth is the stench. What's going on here? He's actually quoting Psalm 14, uh, portions of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. He's quoting, quoting them when he's saying things like, nobody seeks God. And maybe as you read this, you find this offensive and you're thinking, well, can that really be true? I mean, is it true that nobody seeks God? I mean, don't lots of people seek God? Aren't there lots of people who, who uh, even if they're, not in Christian faith. You know, they go through hard times. They pray. They cry out. There's a tragedy in, in, in the culture. There's a, 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 a tragedy occurs and people are like thoughts and prayers. And, and a lot of those people, they, they legit, they just, they send prayers out into the ether. I mean, aren't, isn't, aren't people seeking God all the time? Well, the Apostle Paul quotes from the psalmist. He says, no, nobody seeks him. And we say, well, how can that possibly be true? Right? In fact, a lot of people... The reason they, do, they don't worship God is because they have unanswered prayers that they prayed to God. And that's their basis for not believing in God. So isn't that, you know, isn't all that prayer seeking God? No. Because seeking something from God is not seeking God. Seeking the gift, no interest in the giver, it's not the same thing. Nobody's seeking, actually seeking God, wanting God for God, right? Praying, God, if you do this, or give me this, or get me out of this, I'll believe in you, I'll worship you, I'll give my life to you, I'll go back to church, I'll do this thing. Oh God, if you'll only, if you'll only do this. You don't actually want God, you have no interest in God. You have this thing you need from God. And so Paul's like, nobody seeks the giver. Everybody, at best, is seeking the gift. Nobody seeks God. So, this, provo- this provoking passage is getting us to consider that apart from God's tremendous drawing grace, we don't have any desire to seek his face, although we're very intrigued in what we think he might have in his hands. And Paul's really echoing the words of Jesus in John 6 when Jesus said, no one comes to me unless my father draws him. So there's like this huge spotlight being shone on grace, our need for God's grace, his tremendous kindness. And what it reveals is because that's true, we need God's grace, there's no degree of lostness. I'll borrow a page out of the author and apologist, uh, Tim Keller, one of his textbooks. You know, he, he's talking about lostness. He gives this analogy. Imagine there's three swimmers, and they're going to swim. They decide they're going to swim from Vancouver to Japan. The first swimmer is a beginner. The second swimmer is a lifeguard. And the third swimmer is an Olympian. It doesn't matter, because at some point, they're all dead. 
the one guy might have made it 10 feet, the other guy made it, made it one kilometer, and then another guy made it, made it 10 miles, but they're all, and eventually somewhere they're dead. They're all, the result is the same. And, and there's no degrees of, of their drownedness. There's no degrees of it. There's no degrees of lostness before God. And the reason why this is important is because if you think you're better than the people who aren't here this morning, our neighbors, uh, because you can do more laps in the pool of morality, it's going to be very difficult to be a witness in the city. If you fundamentally, at your core, really underneath it all, believe the reason you're here is because you're better than somebody else. It doesn't matter how many laps you can do in the pool of morality. It doesn't matter if you can do 10 and your neighbor can do 2. There's no degrees of lostness before God. We all need his grace. And this is what gives us tremendous confidence, actually, like huge, humble confidence to actually be ministers in this city, to be bold to share the gospel and give a defense for our hope that it's reasonable to believe in the resurrection and to be able to be very confident, humble about it, but confident because you're not going to judge people by wrongly deciding maybe they're not the kind of person that would trust in Jesus. Maybe they're not the kind of person. I don't know if they're the kind of person that would come to church. You're not the kind of person. I'm not the kind of person that would come to church. I'm not the kind of person that would trust in Jesus. There's not a particular quirk in your personality or mind that if somehow got us to sit here this morning. So you can be tremendous conf- tremendously confident, humble about it because of his grace, but confident about it because absolutely nobody that you know is beyond the saving grace of God. Nobody you know is beyond the reach of his goodness and his kindness. We are not here because of our goodness. All of us are here because of his kindness. And then after he makes that eyebrow-raising statement, he says nobody you know, seeks God, he makes another one. And he says, no, in, in verse 12, it's there. He says, nobody does good. We're like, how, how can that be true? What do you mean nobody does good? There's lots of good in the world. Lots of people are doing good all the time in the world, and that is true. Lots of people who aren't Christians do lots of beautiful and good things in the world, and that is also true. Okay? But remember the context of Romans 3, read 1 to 3, to get the context of what good is Paul talking about. He's not talking about a horizontal good, where you do a good to your neighbor. He's talking about, can anybody do anything good vertically, to repair the brokenness that is our relationship with God? And the answer is no. Nobody can, nobody can do anything good because the context here of this goodness is righteousness, which means right standing. So what could you or I possibly do in and of ourselves so that God looks down and goes, I accept this loving perfection because none of us are living lives of loving perfection. So nobody is doing that kind of good. Nobody can repair the chasm that is the brokenness between a perfect love loving creator and a broken and fallen humanity. None of us can live good enough lives to be able to do that. Right? And here's the other problem with those who think they can do. And again, Paul's taking shots across the bow at uh, not people of non-faith, but people of self-righteous faith. Those who believe that, um, that, their, that their good works are somehow appeasing God. And Paul says, well, there's a problem with those works. None of them are good. They're, if, you think, if you're doing good because you think heaven's watching, nothing about that's good. It's not, you're not serving, it's self-serving. Um, Charles Spurgeon was a great uh, Baptist preacher in the 17th century. And uh, he, um, or 18th century, sorry. And he uh, gives this great story to, to, to show this picture of, of how the self-righteous get it wrong about works and he's it's about the peasant and the nobleman 
And the peasant, the peasant has a small little garden, and he plucks out a carrot, and it's a beautiful carrot, and says, I'm, oh, I love my king so much, I'm going to give this carrot to the king. So he goes to his king, who he loves, and he gives the king the carrot, and the, and the nobleman is watching. And the king takes the carrot, and he says, he's so just, he's thrilled that this peasant gives him this carrot. And he says, you know what, I'm going to give you this piece of land so you can have an even greater harvest. So he gives the guy this huge acreage, and, gives, and, and the peasant runs away just amazed at the gift of the king. He's like, whoa, I just gave him a carrot because I love the king, and he gave me land. What is happening? The nobleman saw it too. The nobleman says to himself, wow, imagine what the king will give me if I give him one of my horses. So he goes to his stable, and he gets the horse, and he comes, and he gives the king, oh, my king, I present to thee. He gives him a horse. And the king knows what's up, and the king says to the nobleman, you're not getting any land. The peasant gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. And that's what self-righteousness looks like when we get this wrong idea about our works and what they're actually for. So there are no degrees of lostness before God. Here's the second thing. Silent lips and empty hands. It's how we receive the righteousness of God. Because that's where this is all going. The law shuts our mouths. It's silent lips. It's empty hands. Verses 19 and 20. What they teach us is that when God's law comes to us, it's not a checklist we keep so much as it is a benchmark that we can't reach. That's the first purpose of the law coming. It says, hey, I'm 37 feet high. You want to jump over me? I didn't think so. The first purpose of the law, and as you read in verses 19 and 20, it's, that's what it's for. And so ironically, um, we can reject God's grace, not because we're ashamed of our darkness, but we can reject God's grace when we're convinced of our goodness. And we revel in our own goodness, and we get a little delusional about our goodness. There's a, a church history professor at Knox, uh, where I went to seminary. His name is John uh, Gerster. He wrote a book called A Theology for the Everyman, and he described how you know, people of non-faith or self-righteous faith alike can both reject God's grace, and it's when we're convinced of our own virtue. Right? Maybe you're here today, and you're exploring Christian faith thoughtfully, and um, it's, and one of the things for you to grapple is like it's hard, this idea that you can't just be good enough and God be like, well, I'm going to accept that, right? Because we, we, we see our own goodness, um, we're delusional about it. And what he says is we're convinced of our virtue, though it's an illusion. The illusion of our virtue, not being nice to your neighbor, but it actually a healing the chasm with God the brokenness of our sin. And so what he says is, as a result of the illusion of our own virtue, grace seems unreal and grace seems unneeded. So fixated on our own mirage, we will not drink real water. So to reject God's grace is to die of thirst with water all around you. So the way we receive God's grace is with silent lips and it's with empty hands, right? Silent lips because the standard of God's law reveals to us that we're unable to, not because he's, you know, a cosmic angry perfectionist, but because he's loving, a loving creator who spun the cosmos into existence from his love, and we are not people who walk out demonstrating an outward-facing, self-emptying, care and concern, love for each other. We just don't do it. Nobody in here would stand on a line that says, yes, I'm a perfectly loving person. None of us would do that, but God is perfectly loving, and therefore we receive his righteousness with empty hands, 
we, we, we let go of our grip on our merit badges and our empty hands are willing to let go of not only our rebellion, but let go of our, of our goodness, the delusions of our own goodness. Which leads to the third thing, peace, right? So there's no degrees of lostness before God. Silent lips and empty hands are how we receive the righteousness of God. And peace is found by reserving our boasting for the grace of God. So think of this righteousness. What Paul is getting at here is righteousness before God is it's a validating resume. It's a validating resume that's opening or closing doors. If any of you have had to put together an academic resume or an employment resume, you think very thoughtfully about what you put on the resume. When Rebecca was a little girl, the first time she had to go through an exercise doing this, she called it a bragame, which was a really good word for it. She's like, I'm bragging about myself. I said, yeah, that's kind of what you got to do on these things. And the whole goal of your resume is to say, look at me, look at what I've done, accept me. I mean, that's the point. And, you know, none of us, when you're writing a resume, you don't, you, you, you got to try and make things as look as substantial as possible. There's people whose entire jobs are to help you write a resume. They're like, don't write down you stocked shelves at the local grocery store. Write down that you're an inventory assemblage and alignment specialist. Don't say that you ran a lemonade stand. Say that you were an entrepreneur who created a mobile refreshment facility, specializing in the art of coral beverage craft, whose vision it is to empower you for life by replacing your body's electrolytes with the fusion of farm-to-table lemons and glacial water. Write that. That's how you write a resume. And so righteousness is a resume. Every religion operates on the basis of it. We talked about it before, but you've got to achieve the righteousness. And what Paul is saying and boldly announcing is as Christians, our righteousness is not achieved. It is received. And so God cannot receive our deeply flawed resumes, but he does accept Christ's perfect resume. And verses 23 to 25 teach us how our resume comes, how we get Christ's record. How do we get his perfect resume? We get it by faith, right? And so if you're if, you know, if your righteousness was dependent on the strength of your faith or the quality of your faith, that would actually be bad news because everybody in here, starting with this preacher, our faith wavers. We trust God, then we don't. It's strong, and then it's weak. Right? We love our neighbors, but then we don't. We're willing to be self-emptying, but then we're selfish. We want to live outward-facing lives in imitation of Jesus, but then we just want to curve in it and say, forget everybody else. All that matters is me and my little world here. If our, if our righteousness was dependent on the strength of our faith, it'd be game over, but it's not. It's dependent on the object of our faith. And those of you in here, you know, English teachers, it's like there's a big difference between the subject and the object in a sentence. Right? Here's your little grammar lesson. Here's how the whole New Testament works. The subject has things happen to it. The object is the thing. And the way that we have to understand Christian faith is that we are not the subjects of our own faith. Christ is the object of our faith. And because he is the object, we as the subjects are having gracious and glorious things done to us continually. And so we put all of our trust in him. Think about it this way. Um, When when talk about righteousness coming by faith and what that means. Think about two little children, right? If you've taken a small child on a plane, maybe. Right? Sometimes little kids get on planes. If you've been on a plane with a small child, the child gets nervous and scared. The, ch- the plane starts bumping. The kid's like, ah, ah. But you want to know something? The fact that the child got on the plane, sat, and was like, okay, this thing's going to get me to vacation, right? Yeah, yeah, it's going to get us there. The little child, the whole, even though the whole flight, the child is having different experiences of their faith in the plane. 
This is wonderful. I love it. Oh, I'm not sure about this. Oh, this is great. This is the best thing I've ever done. Please get me off right now. But they get there. Their faith was up and down, but the point is not the strength of their faith. They put their faith in the right thing, the plane. Hard cut to the second child, who's standing on his shed with an umbrella and a cape. With all the faith in the world that this is going to work. Well, it doesn't matter how strong his faith is. This little guy's faith was up and down, but he put his faith in the plane. This little guy's faith is rock solid, but it's in the umbrella. As he jumps off his shed, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! He finds out on the way down he's not. His faith is in the wrong thing. So we don't put our faith in faith, which is weird. Our faith is in Christ, and that is the good, good news of the gospel. And again, if you think about the impact that has on our mission... As believers are going to city to be humble and thoughtful, carrying witnesses boldly, defense, giving a defense for our hope, this is a big deal because you're not going to look at people and be like, are they the kind of person that would have the kind of faith that would... You're not going to misjudge because your faith is not even in your own faith. But rather, your faith is in Christ. And so we can be very bold in our witness as a result of this. So where is the boasting? Right? Peace is found by reserving all of our boasting in the grace of God. Verse 27, Paul says, where's the boasting? It's excluded. And you know, boasting, it started on the battlefield. That's where this concept of, this idea of, of the boasting and the bravado came from. First Samuel, you remember the story of David and Goliath. There's a lot of boasting. And the whole purpose of the boasting is to basically say, we're okay because of this. We're going to win because of this. I have peace in my heart because of this. I'm not worried about it because of this. And the this, in that case, was Goliath, right? They're all shouting and yelling and boasting. We're okay because look how big he is. Look how tall he is. Look how hairy he is. Look how strong he is. This is why. I'm okay because of this. And so Paul says, where is your boasting? Where is your I'm okay because of this? What's your this? Paul's like, it's, it's nowhere. It's got to be in Christ. It can only be in Christ. That's where, that's the only place that the, 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 that the peace is found. Right? What do you boast in? I can face my day because of this. I can be confident because of this. I feel validated as a person because of this. I have joy and peace and self-worth because I'm defined by this, right? If you're saying, I, you know, I can have confidence and joy and self-worth because I'm healthy and I look in the mirror and I like what I see, that's changing the passage of time. If you're saying, oh, well, you know, I have confidence because there's money in the bank. I have confidence because I'm saving for the future. I'm confident because I have a job that I think is secure. I have a confidence in my education. Look at this degree that I have on my wall. I'm confident because of my resume. You can't trust in Jesus and functionally boast in something else. They're conflicting. You can't say, oh yeah, no, I totally trust in Jesus and I love coming to Redeemer on Sunday morning and giving God a solid, you know, 35 minutes if, if the, or 38 if the preacher goes too long. You know, I really trust him, but my functional Savior is the strength of my body, is my bank account, is my family, is my children. Like, where I really wake up in the morning and go, this is what life is all about, it's really this. If whatever your this is, the passage of time is taking that away. It's just, I'm not being morbid. I'm being a realist. Right? The passage of time itself strips things away. 
So we've got to trust and all of our boasting. What the Apostle Paul is saying is all of the boasting has to be in Christ. And when I was a kid, my whole life growing up, I thought this meant I can't boast in Christ because it seemed weird. Like, you know, it always would be taught to me like, you know how when you're watching uh, the Blue Jays, you're like, yay. Well, then when you're thinking about Jesus, you should be like, yay. And then I'd be like, but there's so many days I don't feel like yay. But that's not what the boasting is. It's like, where at the end of the day are you trusting? What at the end of the day is going to give you a source of peace? What's going to happen when the doctor calls you and says, we don't know? What's going to happen? You fill in the blank. Like, what happens then? And Paul is saying you've got to get on the Christ alone bus. And there's no room for boasting anywhere else but in, but in Christ alone. He's, and then, of course, he's anticipating. Right. He's anticipating this where this argument is going to go about the law, because, of course, Christ has saved us from all of it. We will, have, we will have peace in our hearts when we can say, by grace I'm in the hand of God, my life is in the death-proof you know, hands of the Savior of the universe, and he has kept the law. And Paul's anticipating our argument. And here it is. It's in verse 31. He's anticipating us saying, well, should we just toss the law then? And we've been talking about grace for a long time. Man, I've been coming to Redeemer since we started in 2015. And every single Sunday is grace, grace, grace. So that means, who cares about the law? Because in the end, it's all, and, it's just, and Paul's anticipating us thinking these things. He's anticipating that naivety. He's anticipating it. If you have had the misfortune of having, you know, uh, the law of, uh, of God used like a hammer of legalism to smash you into the ground so you, you leave church feeling like your knuckles are dragging then it is very human natural to be like okay thank god for his grace whoo let's not care about the law paul's anticipating this entire argument which leads us to the final thing that we're going to talk about we flourish in life by upholding god's law with hearts that are animated by god's grace verse 31 paul says what are we supposed to do we're we supposed to uh, toss the law no we uphold the law if we can't keep God's law and we're saved by grace apart from God's law, do we just live with indifference to God's law? No. And what does this teach us? Why, why should we uphold God's law? Right? We endeavor to uphold the law, the wisdom of God, the wise guidance of God, because freedom and human fulfillment is found in imitating Christ. See, the re- we don't imitate Jesus because there's any earning involved in it, because it's done. The vertical is finished. We imitate him now because Jesus is what humanity fulfilled looks like. Jesus is what freedom looks like. Jesus is what fulfillment looks like. So you see, we look to him as our example, not as a crushing moral example. We look to Christ's example to say, you know, this is actually not just a prescription for how I'm supposed to live. This is a description of what freedom actually looks like. Being able to live with a loving, outward, self, self-emptying self way of approaching life when you look at how, how Jesus lived his life. And here's the good news. The good news is you're not saved by God's power and then called to up, uphold the law by your own willpower. The Christian life continues the way it began, and it begins by the power of God's grace, and you continue by the power of God's grace. You know, right now, Isaiah is... Uh, in Oakville, and he's in the very early stages of learning the, uh, the, the art of animation. For years and years and years, he's been drawing pictures, but they just sit there. And now, through the art of animation, he's bringing his art to life, and it's moving. 
That's grace. It saved you, it justified you, and it animates you. It reanimates you. You were moving before, but now you're being reanimated by God's grace. And now we're moving and living in a new way. Right? If God's law is a law of love, and his grace animates you and I to increasingly be people who walks in, walk in love, where do we do that? Well, before we walk out in love in the world, obviously the first answer is you are going to walk it out in our nuclear families, but that's not enough. <laughs> and modern individual spiritualism says it is enough. Just say grace, 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 and make sure it's you and your family and your little house, and boop, you're good. You're not good. That's not even close to New Testament Christianity. Yes, we walk out in our, in our nuclear families, but it's not me, Susan, and my kids, and who cares about you guys? We're okay with Jesus. That's not new. The way to walk it out, the self-emptying, the reanimation of grace, is that, yes, we walk out in our nuclear families, but we walk out in this church family. Love and care. That takes a long time because there's a lot in your heart that needs to be reanimated. There's a lot in my heart that needs to be reanimated. Even as I'm saying this, some of you are sitting there and you're like, your, your innards are like, nope. And you want to know what that is? It's a testimony of the, the need of God's reanimating grace in your heart and in your life to do healing and renewal so that you curve back out. Because I have that same reaction. I'm not up here preaching down to you. I get it. Because you want to know how many times in my heart my, my guts go, nope. I have no spiritual advantage. Pastors aren't special, you know. We're called, but, we're, but being called is not the same as being special. I'm called to do this, but I'm a sheep like you. So there's many times in my heart, in my mind, where a situation or a circumstance, whether in this community or my nuclear family or, or the, the greater Kitchener-Water community, it demands of me to get outside myself, to be loving and, loving and caring, and it there's something in me that's like, nope. But this is what the freedom of Christ keeping the law enables us to do. Whew, we're free from having to keep it. It's kept. But what does the apostle say? Toss it? No. Uphold it. It's not a burden to be upheld. right? How did Jesus talk about his burden, his yoke? Easy, light. Why? Reanimating you. You don't just march out of Redeemer today with a new set of instructions. Okay, well, I uh, hope you enjoyed the sermon today. Here's your list of things to do this week. Get at her. It's not like this cold list of instructions, God's word, God's law, that you don't want to do. The work of the Holy Spirit is to give you new taste buds so that you actually desire and hungry and salivate for the new menu of a life of love in God. And all across the globe today, here at KW Redeemer, our Heavenly Father, he gathers together his family. And yes, the church is a mess. But we're his beloved mess. Who in here is not a mess? Raise your hand. Told you. See, like, just kidding. I could have given you, he didn't give us enough time to respond. Yes, I did. <laughs> all of us, we gather together. And we worship him by, by his great grace. We're thankful that as those saved by grace, apart from the law, he calls to community so we can learn in community, not in isolation, to uphold his law, this law of love, living this life of sacrifice and generosity and care. Christ has kept the law for us 
and so as his children, this law of love is to be upheld by us, not for payment from pleasure, not for earning from imitation. There's no degrees of lostness before God. And so with silent lips and empty hands, you and I have received the righteousness of God. And now our peace is found because all of our bragging is in the grace of God and we flourish in life by upholding God's law with hearts that are animated by God's grace. Let's pray.